Since you enjoy this show, I thought I'd throw out there another podcast you might like. It's a show about the intersection of design, technology, and the creative process. It's the Design Better podcast. And in each episode, hosts Eli Woolery and Aaron Walter bring you conversations with inspiring creative thinkers like John Cleese and David Sedaris, people who bring design and technology together like Tony Fadal, co-inventor of the iPhone and the iPod. So far, some standout episodes for me have been when they talk to John Cleese of Monty Python about creativity. That is one of my favorite topics and one of my favorite people. Then also one of my favorite musicians, Tycho, about his creative process. And they talk with Seth Godin about how creativity is an act of generosity. I've always been fascinated by design, the creativity behind it, the implementation of it, both to improve our lives from a functionality and user interface standpoint, also from an artful bringing beauty into the world approach. So whether you're a design curious person like me or a design pro, Design Better is a great listen that inspires and informs. Subscribe to the Design Better podcast at designbetterpodcast.com or in your favorite podcast app like the one you're using right now. And welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm talking with somebody that's definitely been behind my productivity in the past. Chris Bailey is back on the show this week. He's got a brand new book out called How to Calm Your Mind, Finding Presence and Productivity in Anxious Times. And we're definitely in anxious times. And one of the things that I feel is just lacking completely in my life, and honestly, when I look at other people's lives, is calm. It's just not there. I feel like I get ramped up too easy. I get anxious too easy. I get distracted way too easy. And if you identify with any of those things that I'm feeling, then this is a great episode for you. And in this conversation, Chris and I talk about how the book came to be. And it was born out of essentially Chris as a student of productivity and somebody who lives and breathes it and tries to study it and explain it and research it and impart practical productivity wisdom. He experienced burnout. And if he can experience burnout, that means we all can. So this is the story of what he discovered when that happened and how he worked it out. And it's very applicable and practical We talk about the difference between working in the analog and digital worlds and dopamine and the pursuit of productivity as an accomplishment that is more addictive than we think. And we talk about doing a stimulation fast to rebalance our mind and cut back on the busyness as a state of mind and a state of life to get back to that state of calm so that we can, when necessary, react, but also so that we can more proactively act with intention towards our goals. Trust me, this is a great one. This is one I'm going to be coming back to again and again in terms of referencing, so you may as well get used to it. But anyway, I'll get out of the way and say, enjoy this conversation with Chris Bailey. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome back to the show, Chris Bailey. Chris, welcome back to Beyond the To-Do List. It is so good to be here, man. It's been a little, little bit. Yeah, it's been a little bit. Yeah. But uh, you've been on, let's see, I think it's been twice, although I know I re-released, I think, the episode about the book Hyperfocus at some point there, because that was pre-pandemic and then through the pandemic at some point I said, you know what, we all need to like 
dip back into that one. But you've got a new one, and I'm always looking forward to the new one. Plus, you've been podcasting this whole time, too, recently. Like, yeah. How long have you been doing the show? Oh, a couple of years. It's just my wife and I hanging out. Yeah. yeah. She's a, a professor of economics. She's uh, as big of a nerd about this productivity stuff as I am uh, most of the time. And so we we get on the mic, we chat about productivity, we just have a blast together. Like we do, Eric. Nobody can replace you. Nobody. <laughs> yeah, I am not to be checked off the list, no, trust me. No. So, I've been following you since before we first talked, but we talked about Let's see. The first book was The Productivity Project, yeah. where you were doing all these different experiments and pulling all the things that you found, running yourself through the ringer, so to speak, <laughs> yeah. and pulled that in. And that was the first conversation. And then the second time we came together and we talked about your book, Hyper Focus, which just had a lot to do with focus and the spectrum of focus, I should say. That was, yeah. that was interesting. So, but this one, this one feels more personal. And especially timely. And I love the title, How to Calm Your Mind, Finding Presence and Productivity in Anxious Times. And it's weird. For some people, they're going to read that title and think the word productivity doesn't seem to fit in the rest of the sentence. I know otherwise. I know you do too. But you know, what was the personal story? What was the journey that brought you to, oh, you know what? I've got another book in me. This is time. Yeah. Well, this is not a book that I intended to write. This was a journey that I thought wouldn't really be written about. Uh, I was going through a, a period of burnout and anxiety. And without realizing it, though, you know, I, I noticed that my energy was flagging. I noticed that I was a bit exhausted, cynical. I was feeling less productive than usual, too. And it kind of culminated for me on stage when I was in front of a group of about 100 people. And I was given a talk, you know, as, as one does, you know, you write a book on productivity and people, for some reason, invite you to come out and do speeches about it and share your ideas with their audiences, hopefully helping them out. And when I got on stage to do this particular event, something really felt off as I bounded up the stairs to the stage. You know, I got five, maybe 10 minutes. I, I don't really remember, probably about five or 10 minutes into my talk. And then beads of sweat started to form on the back of my neck. And I I felt as though I was speaking with kind of like a dozen marbles in my mouth that my tongue had to dance around. And suddenly, around that same time, I felt as though someone had injected my brain with a shot full of liquid adrenaline. And I felt just kind of like running off the stage in that moment. and, And I realized I was having an anxiety attack on that stage in front of you know, it was a smaller event, luckily, just about a 100 people at that one. And I blamed this series of events on having a bad case of the flu. Luckily, I think people bought it and kind of stumbled through the rest of my talk to a lukewarm reception at the end. Uh, But I I remember going back to my hotel room, and it was one of those rooms with two beds in it, even though it's just you staying there, one for the luggage, one for you. And just laying down on one of those beds and realizing that I am not in a good place right now. I feel anxious. Well, obviously, I had just had a panic attack. I felt burnt out, exhausted. I was far less productive those days than than usual. And that was the impetus for this journey that I went on in, in the ensuing years in overcoming anxiety and overcoming burnout in deconstructing these phenomenon of anxiety, of burnout, 
and understanding what they really are. I, I turned to a lot of books at the time on those topics, and I found that you know there there was some good advice in some of them, but all the stuff that I'd been following up to that point wasn't really working out for me. My anxiety still had the room to metastasize into this full-blown panic attack on stage, and that was the original impetus for this journey that set me out on this path to try to find calm and uh, introduce it into my life. And I found a lot of counterintuitive things along the way. I found things that weren't really obvious from the stuff that was available. And so the other books, you know, I, I love writing about productivity. That's the angle that I come at this stuff from. But realizing the collection of lessons that I had from this particular little journey, I thought, okay, I have to summarize this in a book and I found that calm is the path to productivity during an anxious time as well. So a whole whole bunch of lessons, but it was from an uncomfortable place that those lessons came to fruit. Well, and I think this is something that almost some people, as they hear a productivity expert or a person who talks about productivity for a living and speaks on it, writes about it, ponders it, mm -hmm. collects things, does research, all of that. I think in some senses, for them to find out that it's possible for you to get burned out as well and to have more personal experience with that and then practical ways to cope with that, but more than just cope, like return back to thriving in a productive life. I mean, none of us want to be stretched too far, too thin and have no energy, but we want to be able to say we got enough done mm -hmm. or more than enough done. Sometimes, you know, it depends on where the, the pendulum is swinging yeah, yeah. at any given season. Right. But, uh, I think to, you know, to a certain extent, it helps us feel like, oh, that expert is a human being. Yeah. They're not just making it up. It's practical life experience that they're drawing upon as well as seeking answers out of their scenario, their situation, their real life, not just their platitudes, if you will. You know, I think one of the remarkable things about this journey, this story that I've gone on, is just how unremarkable it is. You know, you look at the the prevalence of burnout, and it does not discriminate based on your career, based on your level of success, based on your level of mental fortitude. You know, before this burnout and, and that panic attack, that anxiety attack, I was meditating for half an hour every day. You know, I, I was going to the spa with my wife. I was ordering takeout on the road. I was taking these nice long baths. I was actually kind of shocked that the anxiety and burnout that were kind of creeping into their life had the space to do so. And that surprise was part of that original impetus to really research these ideas and discover a lot of interesting things along the way. You know, starting with burnout, like you were just mentioning, even just what burnout is and what causes it, we think and we equate burnout with exhaustion, this just pervasive tiredness that we feel all day long. But the fascinating thing about the phenomenon of burnout is exhaustion, when you look at the research, is only one-third of the burnout equation. We need two other components of burnout to qualify as being burnt out. So exhaustion is one, and cynicism is the second one. So this pervasive negativity that we have with the work that we do. And the third one is inefficacy. So we feel deeply, profoundly unproductive and as though we're not making a difference. And the research also shows that only one thing and one thing only causes burnout, 
And that is chronic stress. It's stress that we face repeatedly over and over again that causes it. But the fascinating thing as well, maybe I just am easily amused because I find this research fascinating, (laughs) is that burnout exists on a spectrum with another component of productivity. And the opposite of this phenomenon of burnout is, in fact, engagement. And so if you flip those triggers around, and full credit where credit is due, this is courtesy of Christina Maslach, who is probably the world's foremost researcher on the subject of burnout, and who I chatted with multiple times over the course of writing the book. She was gracious enough to kind of help me through on this journey. If you flip those triggers around, though, and so you reduce your level of chronic stress and mine the six areas of our work that burnout tends to and chronic stress tends to grow inside of, instead of being exhausted, you become energized. Instead of being cynical, you feel like there is a light in what you do. And instead of feeling unproductive, you feel as though you're making an active difference in the work that you do each and every day. And in that way, we can convert burnout into engagement and become present in what we do. And of course, engagement and presence, they're the process through which we actually become more productive every day and make a difference. And so I like your focus off the top on, you know, this productivity expert kind of, you know, this person studying productivity kind of falling into this productivity trap. And I I think it's something we kind of all fall into because we focus so much on the productivity advice that allows us to get a bit more done and a bit more accomplished. And it's so easy to neglect the advice out there that allows us to build up a capacity for productivity in the first place right? More of a mental capacity, more of an emotional capacity, more of a a resilience to getting things accomplished. And that kind of advice is less sexy, it's less immediate, but it's far, 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 far more effective over the longer arc of time in allowing us to make progress. I think that you're right and not saying that, you know, burnout is that calm is the opposite of burnout. I, I don't necessarily believe that. No, per se. no, not I, at I, all. I think that. No. And in fact, you say this in the book, you talk about calm being a spectrum that ranges from high calmness. Yeah. Which calmness is not a word that most people use. No. High calmness to high anxiety. And so, and that a calm mind is a productive mind yeah. and that it's less. I'm picturing in my head, I'm looking at like almost like a a whiteboard and I'm drawing lines Mm -hmm. up, down, left, right. And I'm drawing like calmness to anxiety being one spectrum and then energy being, you know, from exhaustion to engagement, maybe. Yeah. Although that may not be what you're drawing. Yeah. From engagement to burnout and those kind of three uh, characteristics, exhaustion, cynicism, and inefficacy are kind of stepping stones to both of those. But yeah, so the calm spectrum, this was another fascinating part. And I was kind of struggling at the beginning of this research process because calm is a word that comes up a lot. But when you look at the actual research on the topic of calm, you very quickly realize that very little research has been conducted on this topic. Calm is not an official psychological construct that's been studied and created by researchers. It's not kind of connected to other ideas. I was kind of relieved to encounter one, I think it was called the Vancouver Calmness Scale. That referred in the research to whether somebody who was in the ICU was likely to pull on their their tubes that were connected to their body. And so, like, forget about finding calm in real life. It's very elusive in the research, too. 
But then I was fortunate to encounter a new definition of calm that was just very recently published. Forgive me, I forget the journal uh, at this moment and the researchers, but what they summarized from the research is that anxiety doesn't exist on a spectrum that goes from no anxiety to high anxiety, as a lot of us kind of think it does, but rather it exists on the same spectrum as calmness. And so calm is a subjectively positive state with a low level of mental arousal with an accompanying absence of anxiety. So that is kind of on one side of the scale. And then as you work your way up the scale, you become more and more anxious as you become more mentally aroused in a negative way. In other words, though, if you're feeling anxious, you can go past this point of no anxiety all the way down to calm to be able to greater absorb future anxious situations and become more less reactive to when they happen and find this ground in whatever you happen to be doing. And you're exactly right in what you're saying, that, that a calm mind is a deliberate mind, and a deliberate mind is a productive mind because we're able to slow down and instead of doing more, 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 faster, faster, faster with greater hustle and more stress and more anxiety and working ourselves to the bone without really accomplishing much, we bring a level of deliberateness and intentionality to whatever it is that we happen to be doing and work more deliberately on the right things and we make deliberate progress in the right direction instead of this directionless hustle in every direction. And so it's this fascinating phenomenon. And when you look at what happens in the brain, when we experience a state of calm and when we move from a high anxiety down to a higher level of calm, there are effects there too. One simple illustration of this is if I say, okay, if you're, Eric, say like you're giving a, a presentation to a couple thousand people in an hour, it's going to be very difficult for you to focus on much of anything else leading up to that time. And if I asked you, hey, Eric, I wrote this book on Calm, you want to read it? Chances are you probably won't be able to focus much on that book before you give that presentation because it's this stressful, threatful event that's coming up. That's the effect of anxiety on cognitive performance. But we experience that same effect in a much smaller fashion, but all day long. It's constantly compromising the state of our attention, the state of our mind. And so we really do have a lot of room to be able to increase our productivity by moving down that calm spectrum from that state of high anxiety down past no anxiety all the way to calm. I want to loop in real quick here. I know you've got that Audible original. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess it's just considered an audiobook. I don't think you can buy it. No, no. A physical copy or a, a or a, a text based copy. It's only on Audible, but it's only three hours, yeah. and it's called How to Train Your Mind, and it's mm-hmm. all about meditation. And I, what I found interesting is it's kind of the correlation or the the relationship here. I'd love to have you talk about this a little bit because yeah. you stated that when you entered into that burnout time, or you were already in it, and then suddenly had that panic attack and awareness of it, you had been meditating half an hour a day every day at that point and probably still are right yeah and still reaping the benefits of meditation and a lot of people would think 
well, wait a second. If he's meditating, one, if he's found the time uh, or blocked out the time, I should say, Mm -hmm. for half an hour a day, and if anybody believes any benefit is to be had in meditation, wasn't that enough of an insulating Mm -hmm. effort in and of itself? And I would say probably not. It's not the only component. There's definitely other factors involved, but... That's not to say that it doesn't work or doesn't help. It's just that it's not the only thing. I couldn't help but think of that, you know, this line of questioning, this topic, bringing this up here, because when you're talking about a calm mind being a productive mind, which I agree with, it's almost like when you've got that thing that's gnawing at you, actually, it's not just one thing. It's a portfolio of anxiety, right? Yeah. (laughs) When you have that going on and your brain is flipping through that portfolio of anxiety while you're trying to focus and get something done. Mm -hmm. When I think of that, that is where I think of the thoughts that bubble up while you're focusing on your breath in meditation. So what's your take on that? How is meditation involved or interactive in all of this talk that we're having about a calm mind and burnout and presence and all of this? I love that question so much because it's indicative. And one of the fascinating things about anxiety and calm and burnout is when you look at the actual research on these topics, the journal articles that are published on them, you quickly realize that pretty much everything we do affects how anxious and burnt out we feel. So meditation is definitely something that is on the positive side of the ledger. But if you have more stress than you're able to sop up through a meditation practice, that stress tends to build up and create pressure inside of your mind that eventually might come to a a full kind of burnout situation. And, you know, I mentioned the six burnout factors that have been identified by researchers as uh, elements of our work where this chronic stress that is what causes burnout tends to metastasize inside of it, tends to grow inside of these areas. The first of which, number one of the six, is workload. And so how much work we have on our plate. This is the most common intervention. If you hit an episode of burnout, the first thing an expert will get you to do is reduce the amount of workload on your plate. Second is a lack of control. The less control we have with how we do something and when we do it and how flexibly we work on it, the less control we have, the more likely we are to be on the burnout side of the spectrum versus the engagement side of this spectrum. Insufficient reward is the third one. So that's whether we're paid fairly, but it's also social reward. So whether we're recognized for our contributions and also intrinsic reward. So whether we find the work that we do enjoyable. Community is another one. So whether we feel like we have deep, genuine, meaningful relationships with where uh, we work. Fairness is the fifth one. So whether we're treated fairly, whether work is assigned fairly, And values is the sixth one. And I think values is an underrated component of our work because that's where meaning comes from. You know, if we feel we can manifest our values through our actions, we're going to feel like there's a deeper connection behind what we're doing to who we are. And this is why, you know, creative work is so fascinating. It tends to be more aligned with what we value and it tends to make us a bit less likely to burn out. But You can have a meditation practice and still have a workload that's too high, still feel like you don't have enough control, still feel not connected to the people that you work with, still feel as though things aren't fair and like you're not manifesting your values through your actions. 
And going through my own picture after this positive diagnosis of burnout, it was a diagnosis through the Maslach Burnout Inventory, which is the most commonly used instrument for measuring burnout. My workload was far, far, far too high. I kind of bought into my own story that, you know, this productivity expert story that I was unstoppably productive, and that definitely uh, led me to take on too much. I didn't have much of a sense of community because most of the work that I did at the time was solo. And I felt as though I didn't have control over what I was doing. I was doing a lot of consulting arrangements at the time, which I've since cut back on. I make less money now, but I am so much happier and actually more engaged with what I do because the scale has been balanced a bit more. And this is the fascinating thing about self-help advice, and there's a lot of it out there. So many of the self-help solutions that are out there are more band-aids when they cover up a situation where we have just too much chronic stress in our life that doesn't really have somewhere to go. A 30-minute meditation practice each and every day has remarkable benefits for productivity, for mental health, for lowering our stimulation level, which I found uh, over the course of this journey. Our, Our mental stimulation level is one of the key attributes that we need to keep in check, and that stimulation level is determined by how much dopamine we tend to throughout the day that determines our our overall stimulation height. Uh, But if we have too much chronic stress, all the meditation in the world, it, it might make us relate differently to that situation, but it won't change the situation itself if we keep feeding too much stress into our lives. And so it's so much of this, and we don't always have control over every single element of our work. That's part of work, but we do have more control than we think we do, especially when it comes to these six contributors to burnout. So in other words, had you not been maintaining a meditation practice at the time of your Mm -hmm. burnout and especially the panic attack, it would have manifested so much earlier than it did. Earlier and with greater intensity. I really, really believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic. For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays? What about selling with Shopify? 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond. Again, go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash beyond. You mentioned stimulation, and I think that's where a lot of I mean, even recently, myself personally, I've been rethinking, okay, you know what? I need to be bored more. I need to not just let myself, which is hard to do, but like my whole household is to be truthful. My whole, I'll throw myself under the bus too, but we're, we're all struggling with that. And one, let's talk about that Mm -hmm. and the cause of that. And like just the, the habitualization of non boredom, I guess is maybe the, the way to put it that we've kind of, you know, boiled the frog, acquiesced to whatever you want to call it. But you suggest in the book undertaking a, a stimulation fast. Yeah. So let's talk about the problem there and then this solution of the stimulation fast. Yeah, for sure. I was actually shocked at how well a stimulation fast works because it sounds like the most gimmicky thing in the world. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, how, how am I going to write about this idea? I'm doing a research Yeah, it's based. a productivity fad diet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, loaf card diet for productivity. But I think anybody that pretends to fully understand the neurochemical dopamine is not really admitting that the research doesn't understand it. Uh, And that's a picture that you get when you look at the actual journal articles on this topic. We don't fully understand the role of dopamine in our lives. But what we do understand, it kind of forms a complex picture on the neurochemical. Our brain releases dopamine when we accomplish something, when we obtain more of something. It releases dopamine when we tend to anything that stimulates our mind, so that is novel. And it's not all bad. You know, we do have a release of dopamine when we use logic to solve problems and connect information when we do creative work as well. But this accomplishment and this stimulation really does tend to take over in our lives, this craving of more, which can be balanced with, uh, you know, savoring is a tactic for that. But Zeroing in on stimulation, this mental stimulation that we have, our brain has a built-in novelty bias, whereby for any new and novel thing we direct our attention at, our mind rewards us with a hit of dopamine. And there are three factors that kind of lead to a dopamine release in our mind. Novelty is the primary factor there that differs depending on the things that we tend to throughout the day. The others are genetics and how much something directly affects our lives. But A novelty is kind of the one that differs. And the way I visualize this in How to Calm Your Mind is the different activities we tend to throughout the day all live at a different height of stimulation, depending on how much dopamine they lead to the release of. Uh, And so something that isn't very novel, like anything that makes you bored, like, I don't know, laying down on the floor or just sitting on the couch and letting your mind wander or meditation is another good example of something that is quite boring. These exist at a very low height of stimulation. And near the top of these heights of stimulation, 
might be social media use. It might be reading the online news. Above that, you know, might be caffeine use, alcohol use. Caffeine actually doubles the level, depending on our dose, but an average dose doubles our level of cortisol, so a primary stress hormone, and also adrenaline. You know, caffeine can be thought of as liquid stress, and it also releases just as much dopamine, so it lives at a high height of stimulation. But the most meaningful things on this stimulation level chart, you know, the walks through uh, nature with loved ones, the board game nights with our family, sitting around the campfire, just watching the flames dance in front of us, these exist down below all the social media, all the super stimuli that we tend to throughout the day. Anything super stimuli is just something that is highly processed and an exaggerated version of something that we're biologically wired to enjoy. And where we want to truly be spending more time over the longer arc of time is what exists at these lower heights of stimulation. That's where meaning is found. That's where these slow moments are found. But the problem, as you alluded to, is in the moment, we find it so difficult, almost impossible to resist dopamine. You know, we gravitate to what is dopaminergic. Instead of, you know, being with the person that we're with, even though it's rude, we'll be looking around on our phone and kind of scrolling up to see if any new notifications came in. We'll have, you know, these beeps and buzzes and bloops coming in because we want to remain connected and at a high level of stimulation. And so a stimulation fast is really a process of eliminating those upper band of activities, the online news checks, the constant message checks, the social media use, uh, escapes in the analog world too, the processed takeout food, that sort of thing, and a process of returning back down to earth, which is uncomfortable. And, you know, boredom is a process of adjusting from a high stimulation height down to a lower one. But it is through boredom and discomfort that we adjust downward and find presence with whatever we're doing and whomever we're with. Life becomes easier. We feel like we have more of ourselves to whatever it is that we intend to do in the present moment. And it's the most gimmicky thing in the world, a, a dopamine fast. We, we, we can't fast from dopamine. That's what it's often called. You know, we can't, yeah. yeah, we can't fast from dopamine any more than we can fast from like simple carbohydrates on a chemical level. But we can fast from these empty hits of dopamine, the digital news, the social media, mm. and release more presence into our life. So in terms of setting up like that month long process of, of doing that fast, what does that look like? Like we've got to, we've got to put some boundaries in place. We've got to deal with maybe the potential crash, so yeah. to speak. If we're overstimulating on empty dopamine calories, yes. to use that metaphor, yeah. I guess we're going to be replacing that and or going without. What does that look like in terms mm -hmm. of like, I mean, one, you did it. Yeah. How did you do it? What would you prescribe as like, uh, lessons you learned in terms of having gone through that process probably multiple times now. And I've done it too. I've actually, you know, I've deleted all apps off my phone other than like the camera and texting and the like actually making phone calls yeah. for a good two to three weeks straight. Yeah. I've no, I don't know if I've done a full month. Oh, a full month is liberating. Essentially, you know, you identify the activities that you engage with primarily for that hit of dopamine. So anything that is super stimuli, novel, 
uh, things that you attend to, the, the news, the social media, the apps that you find the most stimulating and distracting. You eliminate those for, I recommend doing a month, uh, simply because that's, it's a more enjoyable time and you, you can actually develop habits around digital usage over that span of time. And then you kind of have this hole in your schedule where these old activities used to be that released primarily dopamine. And, you know, I, I write in the book about how we need to counterbalance these dopaminergic activities with other ones that are well-rounded that release uh, neurochemicals like serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphins. So serotonin comes from things that make us feel proud. So creating something, you know, volunteering is another one. Oxytocin comes from anything that leads us to feel connected with other people. So that's face-to-face time with friends, with family, with strangers, you know, walking around downtown. And endorphins is what leads us to feel a rush. Uh, and so exercise, stretching, anything that actually fires up our emotions, like uh, watching an emotional movie too, even though you might, maybe movies will be, or maybe TV is something you want to eliminate, but you want to uh, watch some old movies at the same time. So anything that is slower and especially analog and well-rounded that you find lead you to a presence, make a list of those kinds of activities so you can tend to them throughout the month and then choose a duration. I do recommend a month. Do the experiment and then notice what changes over the course of the experiment. Because, you know, the best productivity strategies, the best strategies for self-care as well, I I find, are really self-reinforcing. We notice that they're working. And so we feel motivated to continue with them because of the positive difference they make on our work and on our lives. And I think you will be surprised. And maybe you found this uh, with the ones you've conducted too, just in how much more focus you have, in how much more patience you have, in how you don't compulsively check things anymore. And you, you may find a deeper presence and focus and also productivity with what you intend to be doing because you're not always looking for that next hit of novelty. And, you know, this is, as you were saying, something you may need to do more than once. This is something that I found in my own life, in my own work, that because we find it so difficult to release dopamine in the moment, though I wish I I could have done one of these dopamine fasts or one of these stimulation fasts and kind of had a clear mind after that point, I did notice that I still found dopamine difficult to resist after these experiments and needed to do more stimulation fasts, you know, uh, six months down the line or so. But each time, you know, your mind adjusts downward to a lower height of stimulation and you can find more meaning around you too. It's, it's really quite beautiful. Yeah. And, and I think the thing to remind people of here is that stimulation in and of itself is not a bad thing. We, we want that. We need that. It, it's what, you know, our brain is, you know, it gets stimulated. Yeah. It does something with that stimulation. And again, you were listing off some of the other, you know, internal body chemicals, yeah. serotonin, oxytocin, endorphins. Dopamine is just one of the many. And it's just that, you know, it's out of balance. It's out yeah. of whack. It's out of percentage as to what it should be. And it's, it's getting it back down to where it should be. Yeah. And then, Basically staying in maintenance mode, so to speak. Yeah, and the fascinating thing about dopamine is it's often thought of as a pleasure chemical. But it's really, when you look at the science of it, more of a chemical of the anticipation of pleasure. 
than anything else. So when our brain releases dopamine, we feel as though pleasure is right around the corner. And so we are driven forward by this sense of anticipation and never feel as though we've arrived. We feel this first thing in the morning when we pick up our phone often. Our our phone wakes us up and so we check Instagram and we get a hit of dopamine because it's quite a novel place. In fact, you know, Frances Hogan, the, the Facebook whistleblower, she essentially boiled the Instagram algorithm down to two things, bodies and comparing lifestyles. Uh, and it's hard to think of things that are more novel and just primitively motivating than that. So maybe after that, we bounce over to email and find what novel things are waiting for us there. And after that, we check Twitter. And by God, that's quite a novel place these days. And and so we bounce around in this dopamine-fueled feedback loop. And, you know, the problem is we never fully feel as though we've arrived at what we intend to be doing. And when you look at this, not not to nerd out too much, but I feel it's safe to do it on this podcast. When you look at what happens in our brain when we tend to what releases dopamine, there are actually two networks of our brain that are anti-correlated with one another. There's the network for presence. It's called the here and now network that leads us to focus. It leads us to productivity. It leads us to enjoyment. It leads us to the present moment and just to focus on what we intend to be doing. And then there is the acquisition network, the, the stimulation network as well. And those are primarily driven by dopamine. And when the acquisition network is activated and when the stimulation network is activated, the activation in our here and now network plummets. And so, in other words, the more stimulated our mind becomes, or the more we seek more of whatever it is that we are trying to obtain, the less productive and present we become at the exact same time. So it does have this chemical effect too. And again, like you're saying, dopamine is not the problem here. The problem is these activities that we engage with primarily for that dopamine hit itself. That's, uh, that's what we, what we need to eliminate just because of how much less present and productive and focused and calm they make us. Well, speaking of presence, I know that you talk a lot about savoring in the book as well and, and yeah. using that path of savoring or not path of savoring. That's not probably not the right way to put it, but that it's one of the ways to get back into being present, yeah. enjoying life more, and that there's a science behind savoring. What is, yeah. what is that science? Yeah. So this, this is one of the most fascinating research subjects I've ever encountered because just because we experience something enjoyable doesn't mean that we actually enjoy that thing. So as we're chatting, I have a nice, lovely cup of jasmine green tea here that I'm sipping with the mute button engaged as we chat. And just because, you know, I, I'm sipping this amazing uh, tasting green tea doesn't mean I'm going to enjoy it. You know, if I'm distracted by something, if I'm on my phone or something that distracts my attention away from it doesn't mean, you know, that might subtract from my engagement of that thing. So savoring is the process of converting positive experiences into positive emotions. The research says this is actually a skill that we can get better at with practice. There is some default level that we have of our ability to savor whatever it is that we happen to be experiencing. Women find it easier to savor experiences than men do. Wealthier people 
find it far more difficult to savor experiences than people who are less well-off because of that uh, idea of that acquisition mentality subtracting from the engagement that we experience throughout the day. But we can get better at this. One of the uh, tactics that I write about in the book is making a savor list. And so the definition is kind of in the name. On this list is everything that you love to enjoy, from jasmine green tea to conversations with old friends to uh, hardcover books that you can crack open and sink deeply into, to walks to your favorite coffee shop, to your board game nights with your family, to walks through nature. We can practice savoring deliberately each and every day. And going back to the brain network that supports us in this presence, what that does is that activates the here and now network, which has neurochemicals associated with it, like the serotonin and oxytocin, which support activity in this brain's network and lead us away from an overstimulated mind. They lead us to presence. And so, you know, we can savor pretty much anything. Uh, we can savor the past and the future even. And it counts as savoring because we do so in the present moment. When we savor the past, it's called reminiscence. And so we're recalling a, an old memory that uh, we don't allow to fade with time. Or when we savor the future, we practice what is called anticipation, right? A word we've all heard before. But what anticipation does, so if we count down the days to an event or an important uh, thing in our life, this actually has been shown in research to create memory traces in our mind that we paint over with the actual experience itself. And this leads us to actually savor the actual event more when it does happen. So we can practice savoring through reminiscence, through anticipation. We can luxuriate in something. So think of like a cat just luxuriating in the sun, just basking in the glow of an experience. We can give thanks for an event. We can practice gratitude for an important experience that happened. We can marvel at something. We can be in awe of the, the sky or, or, or the, the ocean or, or the sunset. So savoring this deliberate practice does lead us to greater presence over time because of the chemical effects it has on our mind. And since it's a skill we can get better at over time, we can get better at extracting more enjoyment and positive emotions out of our day is quite a beautiful thing. It really is. Well, and this kind of loops back in on what we were talking about with the digital or I should say stimulation fast where you're leaning in on analog things. And let's just face it, like analog stuff. I don't want to shortchange digital stuff, no. digital stuff, technology, all of that. Great stuff. Love it. But it's led us to a place where we kind of neglect some of the more important things. And the the example I can make here is in the food world where you go mm. crock pot or uh, l like a Uber Eats. Uh, smoking <laughs> of a uh, like yeah. a, a, a pork or something, you oh, know, yeah. it takes a long time Keep going uh, yeah. or, a cro you know, crock pot versus microwave. Right. Yeah. And so we've gotten used to microwave. Everything is microwave. And what we're saying is stop using the microwave start to use the slow cooker and enjoy and savor that more. And yeah. that doesn't mean you have to be bored. There are so many analog things that you can do that are entertaining and enriching. And as you were just saying, fall squarely in the Venn diagram of reduced 
it, it still gives you a dopamine mm-hmm. hit, but from a better, more healthier caloric intake, yeah, so to yeah. speak. And you're not bored, you're entertained, but it's healthier for you, yeah. better for you. And we're not saying you can't live in a digital world. We all do at this point. Mm-hmm. It's about having the right balance. Yeah. And, you know, the, the best research, the latest stats that I've found on, on our time in the digital world, they show that we spend about 13 to 13 and a half hours each and every day looking at screens. And when you kind of calculate the proportion of our daily activity that ends up being, it's quite high, you know, 13 and a half hours out of 16 or 17 waking hours. And analog moments, what's beautiful about those is, like you're saying, they exist at a lower level of stimulation. One of my favorite things to do, my favorite meal to eat out with people is brunch. Because you get to just, you know, if you're ever in Ottawa, Eric, we can grab a nice brunch. You know, we can, you can wake up together, have some coffee. Nobody's really connected to their phone yet, hopefully. Anything analog usually exists at a lower level of stimulation. This isn't always the case, you know, like seeing a a Broadway musical will probably be a bit more stimulating than going through some tax software or something on your computer. But the more time you spend in the analog world, the analog world is where calm is found. And really, one of my favorite parts of this journey to calm was finding things that I could do the analog way. Because if stimulation is primarily found in the digital world, meaning and enjoyment and and savoring is found in the analog. And we could kind of make a Venn diagram of sorts where we have the analog only activities in one circle, the digital only activities in the other circle, and we can overlay these circles and where they meet in the middle is what we can do in both worlds. And the analog-only activities, you know, stuff like time in nature or brushing our teeth, the digital-only ones, social media, email, we can only do in those worlds. But the ones that we can do in both, we can find the activities that exist in the middle and find more meaning in those activities, usually without losing any speed, right? Uh, like writing and brainstorming, doing that on a whiteboard versus uh, an app where we can quickly tab over to Twitter. It allows us to go far more deeply into the activity that we're doing. Making a to-do list the analog way. This is something I always go back and forth on because, you know, sometimes you want to be more efficient and the digital world is better at providing efficiency than the analog world is usually. And other times you want to go deep. And so the analog world is great for that. Uh, physical books, you know, board games, the newspaper. I get uh, a newspaper dropped off on my doorstep each and every day. And I find that it is so refreshing to consume the news in a medium that refreshes once a day and is more like a briefing than anything else compared to something that refreshes every three to five minutes online. And so the analog world is a shortcut to a less stimulated mind, and it activates those here and now networks in our brain that support us in developing a capacity for presence over time too, which leads to engagement, it leads us away from burnout, and it leads to greater presence with whatever we're doing. It's it's quite the beautiful place. Yes, and it's a more productive place, even if it's not always as efficient. But again, I don't have to tell you, productivity and efficiency don't always go hand in hand. No, you know, and th- this is, I think, one of the, so, so, like, there's so many benefits of calm, but what we lose in speed with a calm mind, we more than make up for in deliberateness and how deliberately we're able to move towards progress. I think calm really is 
the path to productivity, especially during a, an anxious time. Which I think we can all admit we've been in and yeah. we, I guess, probably currently are in. Yeah. Who knows when that'll go away? And it's, it's on you now. You've got to take control of it yeah. yourself. Yeah. So as we're recording right now, the book is not yet out, but as of you're listening to this, it is, and I'd love to direct people to where they can, one, find out more about it, two, grab your other books, your blog posts, get on your newsletter, your podcast, all of that good stuff. I guess there's a lot of different things that somebody could do. <laughs> uh, so This is called bad marketing because we're spreading out the call to action to all these different places. <laughs> I will just say How to Calm Your Mind is... I think it's the best thing I've ever created. It's the best book I've written. This journey has been just so immensely helpful for me. And I hope you, you will find the same. No pressure to pick up the book. Maybe I'm just a bad marketer, but no pressure. But I find you know, if you care about <laughs> engagement, <laughs> this is a terrible pitch, isn't it? I studied marketing in, in university too. But easily the best thing I've ever created is is the book How to Calm Your Mind. It's available wherever books and audiobooks and ebooks are sold. My website is chrisbailey.com, and uh, that's where you can find all my stuff. I do want to say this, though, that uh, in this conversation, looking back on it, I can say we've touched on some of the broad strokes of the book. There is a lot more large strokes, as well as nuance to what we already talked about. So new things as well as things that we didn't even cover yeah. in this conversation that are in the book. And so even if you're just like, oh, yeah, pick it up if you want. I'm saying this is definitely one of those ones that kicking off the brand new year of 2023 with this book is going to do you a lot of good. This is one the saver. Hmm. <laughs> See what I did there? I love it. Thank you, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm immensely proud of this book. I, I hope people pick it up. Yeah. And, and again, I, your last two books were great. I think this is a leap forward for you. So kudos, Thank man. You. And I'm, and, and you know that. So it's good. Uh, yeah. It, it's funny. Like as we record this, I don't yet have the finished book in my hand. I am so excited to hold this product in my hand because it is something I struggled through. I learned pretty much everything inside of this book the hard way. And I found that most of the advice out there that is outside of this project didn't work for me. And so with the hopes that anybody who is going through an, a similar episode of burnout, of anxiety, of not being able to find this presence, this focus and uh, within this, this sea of an anxious world, I hope these words help you as well. Yeah, I think it will. I think this conversation is going to help. I think that just hearing somebody else having gone through an experience like that is helpful. And again, I think the book's got so much in it. You know, admittedly, I go through all the books that I need to, to talk to people about them quickly. This is one that has to be revisited for sure in my short stack. Oh, so love there it. you go. I will be going back and savoring oh, the book. Oh, love it. There you love go. Love it. <laughs> so Chris, I will list up everything that we talked about in the show notes. It's been great having you back. We'll definitely have you back sooner rather than yeah. later. Maybe we can dive into a different aspect of the book sometime later this year. Let's do it. All right. Chris, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, my friend. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Chris Bailey. I love talking with Chris. Again, I think this was his third or fourth time on the show. He just keeps getting better and better. I love his new book, his podcast, all the stuff he does, his newsletter, everything. So you can find the links to all that in the show notes, which you can find at beyondthetodolist.com. 
or just find them wherever you're listening to this in your podcast player app of choice. And while you're there, if you wouldn't mind doing me and somebody else a favor by sharing this episode with them, help them get their calm back in their life. Hit that share button in your podcast player app of choice again, or on the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next episode. Hey, thanks for listening to the end. If you're looking for a show to start helping you apply these productivity lessons on your business, check out Millionaire University. It's real lessons from real entrepreneurs teaching you what you need to know to improve your business or start one if you've been putting it off. It covers all aspects of business from starting, marketing, growing, managing, and everything in between, wearing all the hats. And as an added bonus, I am conducting a number of those conversations, those interviews, so you'll fit right in. Again, that's Millionaire University. Just search for it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast.